Hello and welcome to episode 96 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm Peter Legge. And I'm Peter Lim, and our very special guest today is Professor Toyan Falola. He's Jacob and Francis Sanger Mosica Chair in the Humanities and University Distinguished Teaching Professor at the University of Texas at Austin. His research focuses on African history uh, and many other aspects of, of African culture and politics and society with a steady concentration on Nigeria. He's authored and edited scores and scores of books and won prestigious awards including the Cecil B. Curry Book Award for Economic Reforms and Modernization in Nigeria. He was a Herskovis Award finalist for his memoir, A Mouth Sweeter Than Salt, and I'd recommend uh, all people to have a look at that, and the Nigerian Studies Association's Best Book Award for Colonialism and Violence in Nigeria. Professor Falola has been honoured, moreover, by five Festristian. He is the series editor for three book series, the excellent Rochester series, uh, Studies in, uh, in African History and the Diaspora, uh, as well as Culture and Customs of Africa by Greenwood Press with a, with, with a very broad reach. Uh, and thirdly, Studies on Africa and the Black World by Carolina Academic Press. He is also the convener of the annual Africa Conference on, uh, at the University of Texas in Austin. And let us not forget that he's the current president of the African Studies Association. A very warm welcome on a quite cold morning. Thank you very much, and um, it's a pleasure for me to be on this beautiful campus for the third time. It's a pleasure to be with you and to thank you for what you do, and I've been addicted to this program. I think I must have seen the previous 95. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much for doing this. Well, that's great to hear. Thank you. And in your book, your memoir, A Mouth Sweeter Than Salt, which I was just rereading, uh, you describe beautifully what it was like to grow up steeped in Yoruba culture and Yoruba history, uh, becoming Yoruba is the title of one of the chapters. And it seems like that meant that, that Yoruba has kind of provided a syllabus of life uh, for you, a vocabulary of knowledge, the proverbs, the songs, the idioms. Uh, all these tools and codes to, to navigate places, relationships, situations. How did these experiences and forces shape you as a scholar uh, and as a historian? Thank you, and I will start with the depressing one that those situations that you've just described are fast disappearing. Now we now have Africans who cannot speak African languages. We have Yoruba children who cannot speak Yoruba. I'm not talking about Yoruba born in Michigan. I'm talking about Yoruba born in Lagos and Ibadan. Um, I used, at a, at a very early age, was able to perform in, in drama, in festivals so easily, you didn't have to coach me. Today, if you go to Ibadan or Lagos, that you want to recruit uh, uh, people to stage a drama, you have to do an enormous amount of work to train them and keep training them. Uh, I've done two projects that collapsed because I couldn't get people to train. And fundamentally, the reasons have to do with your question. That things that we, we did casually, that we assumed to be organic, as part of growing up, uh, they are no longer so. Um, because within the settings of compounds, within the settings of, of township and cities, 
this growth were connected with languages, with interactions with people, with day-to-day -day experiences and practices. So it's not that you, it's not that they were formal, but you grew up with it, and then you began to internalize them. And we must also return to the fundamentals of um, training. Uh, people have always criticized the British and French for, for good reasons, of course. Imperialism is bad. But one of the things they tend to also forget is that, by and large, in some situations, they actually did not allow many of these cultures to, to degenerate. They were teaching us in Yoruba in school. English just became secondary. So, so, but today, now, they, they, they're not teaching those languages. They're not emphasizing the primacy of, um, of English. So in some ways, the school system also reinforced um, many of those practices. Uh, drama competitions, cultural performances, all over what was called the Western region were there in which schools competed. And I, I competed in singing, I competed in drama, and, 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 and those, that formal system also reinforced the organic and formal ones. Maybe I could just uh, come in on this question of language, and uh, I was rummaging through my bookshelves and came across your 2003 book on the, the power of African cultures. And there's a chapter in there entitled English or Englishes, question mark, the politics of language and the language of politics, in which you elaborate on these themes you were just talking about, the, the conundrums of language policy of English and Nigerian English, of Pidgin, the, the big three of the indigenous languages, but also the, the myriad of other languages. And I was reminded that the first lang African language taught at MSU in the early 60s, I think it was something like 62, was, was one of the smaller uh, Delta languages, mm. which, was, which was quite unusual. But at one stage in, in, your, in your excellent chapter there, you cite the late Professor Babs Fafunwa, who, who wrote on this matter, and he was a Minister of Education. He was here in the 1970s, and uh, recently we've been privileged to receive from the family his papers, and there's a lot of material there about all these conundrums. How do you work it out at primary school, at elementary school? And, uh, and uh, higher education and so on and so forth. And I see a lot of material um, publications coming through from Nigeria. Uh, I see a lot of, um, it's always a delight to see the publications in Hausa and Yoruba and Igbo. Though at times, from the, for the scholarly times, they're more often than not swamped by the English. So I guess the question is, you know, given what you were just talking about, the, the the fact that we have people, in a sense, alienated from their language culture, is there a need to, to somehow uh, adapt the language policy, or is this something that's, that's so deeply embedded in, in society now that it's, that it's more or less set? Yeah, thank you very much. And this gives me the opportunity to actually uh, celebrate um, the late Professor Fafungwa because he did a major, major project, which people have forgotten now. This project was about the use of indigenous languages to teach kids at the elementary level. Uh, I know about the project. He was 
a professor there when I was a student and he was a professor when I became a junior faculty. And this project was actually experimented in the public, in the, in the city of Ilefe, in which they set up an elementary school and were teaching them just basically in Yoruba. And then they wanted to elevate that to the high school. Um, that project uh, eventually uh, collapsed, unfortunately, as with many things Nigerians. But this is, the, some of us have said we should revive this kind of project. They did some essays, but because the experiment was not concluded, we have no means of, of validating it. But uh, so I'm very happy that you were able to collect these papers. And hopefully, part of this project will be in your collection that people can, that people can study. His argument, I can say that I have turned it into a passion myself. And in two convocation lectures, you call them commencement in the US, that I've given, I actually make that the central premise of my discussion. Uh, that there must be a return to that indigenous languages. Some of my arguments are similar to what um, Ngugi made many years ago, but some are also fundamentally about the question, how many countries do we have that have developed who use other people's languages? And when you begin, there are very few, and some people will say none. Whether that is part of the tragedy of this education system may be an overstretch, but it's an argument that one can make. The second point I want to make in, in line with your argument is to celebrate Sarowiwa. Mm. Because when he wrote The Sosa Boy, mm. uh, which became very famous, he was one of the very, he, he wasn't the first to use Pidgin or Creole. They've been using it since interactions with Europeans. But he, he was able to use his stature to validate language, that language in that, in that brilliant novel. And that validation has now flowered in different directions to the point of legitimacy. So in Nigeria now, you now have radio stations, television stations that use pidgin. So it's been accepted. Uh, it has not been accepted in terms of the school level and using it as a curricular, but nobody doubts the relevance and competence of pidgin anymore. So we also have to celebrate Sarua in this direction. Now, the other point is about the, the very fact that some languages like Aousa, they are so strong. Not only are they so strong, they have become official languages in, in bureaucracy. It works in two ways. If you go to Aousa-speaking areas, unless they are they confirm that you can never, never speak another language. That is when they will engage with you in another language. So let's say, for instance, they know you can speak Awusa and English. They won't use English for you. And that allows the language to gain currency. So in, 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 in their offices, in universities, they, they speak that language. Indeed, I recommended to Sokoto State University, which was created four years ago, that instead of teaching in English, in English why don't you use Aousa to teach? And, and, and let's experiment with it. Because you, you already have a constituency that has been able to use this language efficiently 
and to turn it into a language of commerce and a language of bureaucracy? Why can't the university turn it into its own language of adoption? And then, just as we have Creole uh, pidgin in the south, we have Ajami in mm. areas where there is Arabic. Mm. That Ajami, which is always confused with Arabic, because mm -hmm. of because of of um, the way people write them, has um, tremendous potentials. We've not tapped them. We've not tapped into Ajami for for their representation. But fundamentally. Here is one fact that people forget. Arabic, you know, you write from the right to the left. So where you have a jammy, where they began to turn Aousa and West African languages, create orthographies for them, and they began to ask them to write from the left to the right, instead of from the right to the left, people have not been able to examine the changes that have made in terms of the generation of words, in terms of how the brain functions, and in terms of tonality. Because there's a big difference when you write from the left to the right, mm -hmm. and from right to the left. Mm -hmm. So your question has opened up so many avenues that um, we can discuss all day uh, with a lot of policy implications, expansion of the frontier of knowledge, and precisely the relationship between languages and citizenship, a question that people don't pose. And you started by talking about colonialism and imperialism, and uh, of course English was a pillar of that, and uh, I'm also reminded from Moses Achunu's brilliant new book on the Middle Belt yes, in Nigeria, yes, yes. where he talks about the way in which mm -hmm. uh, house of speakers were, were incorporated into that uh, colonial paradigm, mm -hmm. but you're going straight from uh, here to give the ASA presidential lecture later today uh, on the theme of decolonization and creativity in late mm -hmm. colonial Nigeria. Mm -hmm. And it's quite a uh, popular topic at the moment. Fred Cooper's recent book, and he ruse perhaps a little counterfactually, some lost opportunities for more inclusive, wider forms of citizenship, etc. What can we say broadly about creativity then as, as it relates to, to decolonization in Nigeria? Well, in labeling disciplines within the category of humanities, we've invented literature, folklore, history, which are well and good. But part of that invention has also created a damage in which when people do things, they, they don't fragment them into those disciplines. They do them as holistic. So when the academy took over after 1948, they began to pigeonhole stories into literature, pigeonhole painting into art history, and things like that. Part of what I want to do is to break down, is to eliminate those categories and look at the center of what people are doing when they were not creating those labels. In other words, how can we accumulate what we call fiction and plays and drama and art? How do we accumulate them into a category on their own? And I'm using creativity to, to, to integrate all of those and to say, what do they speak to? Uh, 
the, the project has expanded beyond what I can control because I've acquired them over 100,000 pages of test within a period of 15 years. So others have to join me in this project. I, I no longer can do it by myself. But the, the, other, the other significant project is the oversights. When people talk about literature in Nigeria or West Africa, they are talking specifically about a Western educated elite. They're talking about Achebe and Shoyinka, Kibu, and people like that. But they miss out too many things. They miss out that before 1958, uh, when Achebe wrote, that there have been tons and tons of writings in local languages, in, among the Igbo, Fagwa, Tutuola, oversighted, that there have been that movement of writing. But fundamentally, they don't integrate Ajami-speaking areas into what we call modern literature. They have not been integrated, whereby they, there was an extensive body of work, which even um, in talking about modern African literature, modern African fiction, we don't teach them, uh, unfortunately. So part of my project is to rescue them, to rescue that which we have not been teaching. Uh, they're very abundant. Uh, assessing them may require learning languages, but they're there. And precisely what do they, what do they speak to in connection to, to politics? And one third point, when scholars in this part of the world, we are obsessed with the Western Africa, all well and good. But what we miss is the internal conversation within colonized spaces in which they were not all framing dialogue in terms of West and the rest of us. They were framing dialogue between us and us. So that internal dialogue in which they are discussing among themselves, mm -hmm. which have nothing to do with an external world, has not been represented. For instance, why is it that Achebe's work has not been translated into Ausa? one of the widely spoken languages mm. in Africa. So there's an internal conversation behind that. Why is it that when we talk about art history, the entire Islam, Islamic region have been eliminated from it? There's an internal conversation about that. Issues around feminism that we talk about all the time, there's an, an internal conversation about that. So this body of work we not just be structured in terms of African modernity or Africa and the West, uh, important tropes, but it will also be structured along internal conversation within Nigerian colonized spaces. That's actually a, an excellent bridge to the question that I wanted to pose to you about the relationship between Yoruba history, Nigerian history, you could say even West African history and broader African history. Mm -hmm. What is that relationship? Because when you talk about the internal conversations, mm -hmm. in a way, there's also boundaries that are going up between the insider and the outsider, mm -hmm. for instance. And there's so many historiographies on the African continent. For those of us who don't specialize on Nigeria, mm -hmm. sometimes uh, it becomes even more challenging to try and find out who is speaking to whom and 
um, what are what what lessons can we draw from those mm-hmm. from that work and from those conversations that that relate to what uh, we do in other areas, for instance. So, mm-hmm. um, I mean, the Badan School is mm-hmm. is a mainstay of learning about African historiography mm-hmm. and its development and its changes, just like the Dar es Salaam School yes, and so on yes. and so forth. So, I'm really interested to hear what what your perspective. Uh, is on this relationship? Well, we have to be grateful that the field has expanded. Every year, there's so many books and essays, no one can read all of them anymore. But in that expansion, is also the issue of fragmentation, in which um, people get fragmented into, into their various disciplines, sexuality, sports, mm-hmm. as in your case, identity, witchcraft, and things like that. Uh, the extent to which that fragmentation means that the era of um, people like Marke Crowder, Therese Ranger, Ugot Ajayi is gone, whereby you can produce mm. figures that are well known and cut across. Uh, I tell people now that becoming famous has become so difficult precisely because of the point you are making. Because once you fragment, people only know you within your narrow field of specialization. Uh, some of us are very lucky that we're able to escape that um, kind of um, occurrence. Bear in mind that Ibado School, Makarere, Legon, they emerge at a critical point in time, at the, the, the colonization phase of time, so that they were not just intellectual projects. These were nationalist projects. And um, as I said in my Nationalism and African Intellectuals book, in which I devoted a chapter to universities, these were projects of the nation state. And when the nation states themselves got into crisis, like the Nigerian Civil War, these universities were also connected to that crisis. Mm -hmm. The Nigerian Civil War, for instance, part of its planning was done at the University of Ibadan. So, so you have universities, not just as our colleagues in the West see them, just generating knowledge, they were heavily embedded in the projects of the nation state. So for, for, the, for, for the initial phases, that connection was one-on-one. And you also see that connections with the nation states in the careers of the pioneer professors. Edubuain, my good friend, ran for the presidency of, the, of Ghana. Uh, he lost to Kufor. Mm. He died. I was there. It was a state barrier. A professor doesn't get a state barrier, <laughs> by the way, if you are not connected to a nation-building project. Uh, he wasn't alone. Jai, all of them, in which the professor was not just somebody going to the classroom to teach. He was very much embedded in the project of nation-building, for good and for bad. Uh, if the nation does well, they take some credit. If the nation doesn't do well, they criticize. They criticize the nation, but they are also, in some ways, implicated in that crisis. Uh, DK was an ambassador for Biafra. Uh, Chibi was an ambassador for Biafra, in which scholars and projects of nation states uh, became deeply connected. There are two issues going on. First, the revival of that older tradition which is making me happy. We just finished the inaugural conference of the Association of African Studies in Africa. 
uh, October 13 to 17. I give the keynote address, which was to say, why can't we return to the older network, which had existed before, bring Legon in conversation mm -hmm. with Ibadan, Makarere, and I was very happy that people came from different parts of Africa. If that becomes sustainable, uh, some of what we lament today about lack of interactions, some of those gaps will begin to close. Uh, it's too early to, to know what is going on. But we also have to return to a fundamental issue of decolonization. We're not just talking about network. How do we move to the next level of decolonizing this knowledge? What the what DK Generation Crowder Teres Ranger did was to infuse historiography with a nation state project, the concept of nationalist historiography. So in my keynote address, I began to talk about the need to begin to turn to indigenous African conception of language, language idioms and see the extent to which we can use them as parameters of understanding. For instance, why do we use colonial, pre-colonial, post-colonial? Why can't we find um, labels that are more ap appropriate to the flow of history, to the flow of events that do not conform to those parameters? And Akio Gundera of the um, University of North Carolina has come up with categories, say, for the Yoruba in which he created a non-Western label. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we, we just did a conference on epistemology that I convened. I think it's possible to create label for the Kikuyu, for Yoruba, for Igbo. I think that is doable, in which their histories are plugged to the way they also divide time and space. How we can now agglomerate that into an African timeline is may be difficult, but not impossible. I want to try and refract this mm. discussion, which is really incredibly important in terms of the, the, the new generation. And I want to come back to your rich and wide-ranging book that you just mentioned, Nationalism and African Intellectuals. And I always enjoyed using that when I was teaching graduate classes in African historiography. And you bring out so many things there. The, ambivalent relationships between African intellectuals and the colonial apparatus, the following nation-state uh, formations, just as you've said, these historians, these scholars who were imbricated in, mm -hmm. in this nation-building. But you come to the conclusion that uh, how Africans, either at home or abroad, will acquire autonomy and control the production of knowledge about their continent will ultimately depend on the possibility of a positive political and economic transformation. And um, obviously the work of historians in charting these currents can be relatively straightforward, uh, if laborious. And you do this wonderfully across this wide tableau from Samuel Johnson and Yoruba and through the, uh, the political nationalists, the cultural nationalists, through and to the diaspora today. But your, your forward-looking conclusion got me also worried about the perplexities of today's world, of what uh, one French philosopher, Gilles Lipovetsky, terms the hypermodern. 
I don't agree with a lot of what he says, but his focus interests me because he's looking at the what he calls the extreme individualism uh, that we see in many spheres, and which ha seems to replace an earlier sense of social duty, which underpinned democracy, yes, social yes, democracy, yes. and so on. So the, really the question is sort of, have we still got a right to be optimists? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and this comes back to your early theme of fragmentation. So yes. ha ha has the fragmentation run away from us? No, it has not. But there's one positive news, uh, the, 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 the revival of um, communities and tradition all over what, Mexico, Venezuela, uh, Cuba, Africa, in which in response to globalization, communities are redefining themselves. The very traditions that we've, people have criticized, belittled as paganism, uh, there's a lot of projects now ongoing in various ways. The outcome of this revival of tradition and community is too early to say, but we've, we've seen the trend. Second, the extent to which translation projects, and by translation I don't mean English to French, I mean how borrowed ideas have been translated yeah. with a lot of speed and efficiency is, is, very, is, is very impressive. Let, 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 me give you, let me give you a few examples. Pentecostalism. The Redeemed Christian Church of God by a former professor of mathematics by the name of Adeboye has become a global phenomenon in which it took Christianity and converted it uh, into, into new forms of, of, of practices, infusing it with some of the points you've mentioned about capitalism, individualism, but in the process, generating a remarkable expansion. Uh, the, all the areas of creativity like music, clothes, and things like that, they've given us tremendous amount of um, successes and hope in which Young people are not just borrowing these ideas, they are converting them into new things. We can treat some of these as intellectual projects, which indeed they are. How then do we respond to some of these intellectual projects? The idea is not to remove ourselves from the mainstream, because that in itself is not possible. Uh, the idea is not to dismiss what is called universal ideas, that in itself is not possible. But the idea is to say that, first, what are those ideas that we work? Because they have to work. Second, what are, those, what are those ideas that are sustainable? Because they have to be sustainable. And third, what are those ideas that hold specifically to the continent? Give us a list. These are the ideas you've formulated based on your own experiences. There are so many universities now, which is very good, private universities all over the place, a new generation of scholars. So we do not know what our colleagues are doing in Africa. That's part of the problems of the way this we now constitute knowledge. We don't know because the traffic of ideas the, the, con the connections that publications in the 60s and 50s provided, they are no longer intense. 
there are now so many journals in Ghana, in Nigeria, in many African universities that people don't know about. I, I'm on the Scholars Council of the Library of Congress. And uh, the Library of Congress spends a lot of money sending librarians to Africa. They, they now create offices to be collecting some of these materials. So at some point, we have to understand the conversation that is going on in Africa itself, understand the kind of research projects they are undertaking, and understand the conclusions and research they are making. Because, because in, in, in creating the, that autonomy of creating their own spaces, creating their own journals, they are also creating ideas. Those ideas, unfortunately, are not fully connected to a global academy. Mm. But it does not mean that they are irrelevant production. Yeah, so I'm very optimistic about, about that. In our last podcast, we had uh, your fellow compatriot, the great cartoonist, uh, Ganyu Jimo, a.k.a. Jimga, and cartoon scholar. And he also was speaking to my class two days ago about the 2015 presidential election in Nigeria, shifting from history to, to contemporary politics. Mm -hmm. And Jimo is essentially said that Buhari's victory, while symbolically important because it was the first sort of peaceful democratic transition of power in Nigeria, really won't lead to a substantial change compared to the previous administration, that of Goodluck Jonathan's. Um, I'm interested in hearing your assessment of what happened just a few months ago with the presidential election and what, it, what the future may hold from a political standpoint, perhaps, uh, well, for Nigeria. Well, Nigeria and other African countries, moments of elections are moments of instability and moments of fear. Because there are, in, in, in plural societies like Nigeria, two opposing forces are always, always at work. Every day, people wake up. The centrifugal forces and the centripetal. The forces that unite them and the forces that divide them. The, people have made two fundamental mistakes the first fundamental mistake people have made is to assume that democracy is an integrative mechanism. That is not what the evidence has told us everywhere. Democracy is a messy project. Because what democracy does is to allow you to bring to the surface the things that you have been hiding. So the assumption that democracy will integrate ethnicities and things like that in actual fact, what democracy does as we compete for these elections is to reinforce ethnicities, to reinforce those differences. And in moments of elections, those differences become accentuated, sometimes to the point that things may break down. The second fundamental error people make is to link democracy with development. I understand I understand why people think that way, because the expectation of government is to deliver. But we have to go and reread all the older classics, because they link it with law and order, with state security. The, the project of saying democracy give jobs was part of the contributions 
of developing countries, part of the arguments we began to make in the 70s and 80s. So here is a way one can look at this in many ways. In, in a very diverse country like that, the first fundamental project is not to allow the country to collapse. That is extremely fundamental. So uh, and, 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 uh, any project in which we're able to keep that country together, whether in the behavior of Jonathan in conceding or the behavior of Buhari in power is, is, is in itself an achievement that the country doesn't collapse. The second is about security issues because forces of destabilization are so many. Boko Haram in the Northeast, Niger Delta insurgency in the Southeast, communal tensions, Joss, Kaduna, Muslims and Christians, land-based tension in pastoralist roots and grazing parts that have been destroyed, creating emerging tensions between pastoralists and landowners. Just crisis, Benue state crisis, Kogi state crisis. That crisis, if not well managed, is going to be bigger than that of Boko Haram and the Niger Delta insurgency. Mm. It's going to be much bigger. What people forget, tend to forget, for reasons that I do not know, is that they do not know that in West African history, from the fall of the Songhai Empire to the fall of the Sefawa dynasty, the crisis of pastoralists and farmers and landowners had been part of West African history. In fact, it was one of the reasons at the root of the Uthman Danfodio Jihad. How do pastoralists grace their cattle? So for years, they, they, they are transhumans. They've been able to move. They've been able to move the animals and look for grass. Well, then building projects, road projects, state frontiers, creating his own crisis. That's going to be there. So with that cluster of insecurity, it requires a lot of intellectual wisdom to say, what will a new government focus this upon? Do you want the new government to focus on the economy, the concept of change, which we are looking for? Or do you want the Buhari government to focus on insecurity? Because they are related, but you have to, you have to do a priority. If, if you focus on the economy and people are able to eat, and you, you, you endanger issue of insecurity, your government will be in, in, in a big mess. So that dilemma is there in which he has to resolve. If, if anyone asks me if I were to advise him, I would say that issues of that insecurity are paramount because they will revive issues of ethnicities. They will revive issues of religious fundamentalism. They will complicate issues of the Christian-Muslim divide. So on a daily basis, I think he has to be meeting with his security staff and take this as a preeminent 
as a preeminent issue. The third dimension is the fault line in Nigerian politics. The South East, the Igbo people are angry, and they have a legitimate reason to be angry. Um, because of the Civil War, they had a legitimate reason for secession. That was a legitimate reason. They said they wanted to go. Nigeria said, we are not going to allow you to go by force. If you say, okay, you can't go, they want the promise of citizenship. They want the benefits of nationhood. So they, if you, uh, in, there was a country by Achebe, part of what he's saying is that where are the benefits of citizenship and where are the benefits of integration? If you had forced us to be in the union, what is it that we're getting? So that question has not been answered. And uh, until it is answered, there will be a lot of, um, there will still be a lot of complications. And because that question has not been answered, the Buhari regime has been evaluated along that paradigm and has been evaluated along a Yoruba-Ausa alliance for political domination. Understand all the contest. They are not difficult to understand. Evaluation is now based on, first, whether you lock yourself into that paradigm. Because once you lock yourself into that paradigm, you already know the conclusion. Or whether you allow time to see how that paradigm will be resolved, or you allow time for evaluation. But so far, uh, he has disappointed those who think that is too slow. Uh, in the appointment of ministers. He has disappointed those who think that he would uh, minimize corruption because they regarded him as an anti-corruption guy. They have not seen the impact between his leadership and the minimization of corruption. Uh, and so far, too, he has disappointed the business class because whether it's in the U.S. <laughs> or Europe, the business class is to what extent is the state awarding contracts? To what extent do you allow liquidity? Mm. And to what extent do you allow new forms of business opportunities? Mm. So I can also understand their own disappointment. Well, lots to ponder. And uh, we'd like to thank you for all your insights uh, and for joining us on this edition of Africa Past and Present. President thank, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. And I look forward to coming back. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at Africa dot podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.